Hey guys, delighted today to have uh, with me Professor John Stadden. I hope I did, I, did I pronounce that properly? You got it. All right. He is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Professor of Biology Emeritus at Duke University. He has a Psychology Today blog titled Adaptive Behavior. As an evolutionary psychologist, I'm always excited to see the word adaptive anywhere, so thank you for that. Uh, the author of countless academic papers and several books. Let me mention these books. I'll begin with the most recent one, the one that will be the foundation of much of our discussion today. People, you need to get this book, Science in an Age of Unreason, published by my own publisher of The Parasitic Mind, uh, Regnery, uh, the amazing publisher. Uh, the New Behaviorism, Foundations of Behavioral Science, third edition came out last year. Scientific Method, How Science Works, Fails to Work, and Pretends to Work. Maybe we'll talk about that. Then you have a memoir about six years ago, The Englishman, Memoirs of a Psychobiologist. I love seeing the words psychology and biology together. That's what I've been doing my entire life, so thank you for that. Adaptive Behavior and Learning, Adaptive Dynamics, The Theoretical Analysis of Behavior, and then one from 2013, Unlucky Strike, Private Health and the Science, Law and Politics of Smoking. Did I cover most of the important issues, John? You absolutely did, except there's a new edition of Unlucky Strike. Oh. Which was the stimulus for which was getting the manuscript of a book written by Alan Silberberg. You might even know his name. He's a psychologist. I hadn't seen him for 30 years, but he had written on the same topic 10 years earlier, but never published it. So I tried to put the two of them together, and that's called Unlucky Strike, second edition. Oh, it's available on, uh, you know. Amazon. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Great. Uh, so as I mentioned before we came on air, I thought that we would start off with some of your, you know, academic work in behaviorism, new behaviorism, link it to evolutionary psychology. And then we'll go on again, people get this book, uh, Science in an Age of Unreason. So let's begin with your background, behaviorism. Tell us what behaviorism is, you know, Skinnerian conditioning and so on. And what do you mean by new behaviorism of which you are a pioneer? Okay, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Uh, to introduce a little personal history, I was educated in England, and as some of your uh, watchers may know, in England you apply to a university, not to the university, but to a department. And the department I would have liked to apply to was biology. Unfortunately, at that time, education in England was pretty impoverished. My school did not have a biology teacher. So I couldn't pass the biology A-levels, which meant I couldn't get into biology. All I could get into was the low prestige areas, in this case, engineering. <laughs> so I started out in engineering at something called Battersea Polytechnic, which has now uh, elevated itself into some kind of university. But I didn't like the engineering. There were very few women there. I noticed that immediately. Uh, and the two that were in my class were better than I was. So I figured I must uh, uh, I must be better at something else. And I found out about this thing called psychology. And there were no A-levels in psychology. You just had to pass this little test. I was good at little tests. So I switched to psychology as a good compromise uh, with biology. And that's how I got into psychology. Then via a lot of back and forth, I wound up at Harvard. Uh, in the Skinner lab, it was a tiny department in those days, half a dozen people maybe in the basement of Memorial Hall. Um, it was called psychology, but it was really experimental psychology. The rest of psychology was in social relations in a big building elsewhere on campus. But I was fascinated by the Skinner lab. It's a beautiful technique. Even as an undergraduate, I'd been very suspicious of the group method. I was interested in individual organisms, right? And I, I, I couldn't see how to, to, to do that with the group method, so I never used it. I always worked with individual organisms. But I immediately found problems, I thought, with Skinner's approach. It was a stimulus response. There was no acknowledgement that anything went on inside the head of the animal, or it seemed to be that way. Uh, but everybody was incredibly tolerant. I was in my lab supervisors and at that time, wonderful guy, he was excoriated later for his collaboration with Charles Murray on the bell curve. Uh oh, oh. <laughs> oh Her Hernstein. Yeah, Dick Hernstein. But he was a wonderful supervisor. He basically let me do whatever I wanted to do. Uh, and so I did a bunch of experiments and so on, got a thesis. Um, but I also took a courses, um, Marvin Minsky's course at MIT on uh, compu computer intelligence. Oh, he's the cognitive studies guy. 
Yeah, well, yeah. he's a, sort of the father of AI, really. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't actually teaching the course. It was taught by a guy called John McCarthy, who invented a computer language called Lisp, which I learned a little bit of. Uh, John, before you go on, my undergrad is in mathematics and computer science, so all those names are bringing back goosebumps on me. Yeah, well, he, McCarthy was wonderful, but he was not the greatest lecturer in the world. I mean, he would come in, sort of distract and write equations. And it was quite clear he was writing equations that he started in his office. <laughs> he was just finishing. So it was very mathematical, but wonderfully interesting. And I read a, a book, uh, many books on the subject, one called Automata Studies and so on. But from this, it became quite clear that if you wanted to understand a system, you needed the stimulus response and the state. You needed to understand the state of the system. And that was simply outside of uh, Skinner's uh, worldview at that time, or seemed to be. I wrote a little thing. I remember I still have the purple paper copy of it for a seminar of his. Uh, but I presented this rather feebly, I'm sure. I was you know, a shy kid so, uh, and made no impact, whatever. But it made an impact on me. And the new behaviorism is an attempt to incorporate that idea into uh, the psychology of learning, psychobiology of so learning. So the, the state of the system, so let me see if I understand what you mean in, in, in your vernacular. So for example, uh, the way that I might behave in making a decision, whether I am situationally hungry or not, will alter my behavior. Therefore, you're taking my situational state as part of the total uh, model. Is that what you mean by, by, well, by the state? Well, it's simpler than that. I mean, the theory is incredibly simple. You, are, you have stimuli and responses. The stimulus can have two effects. It can change the state or it can elicit a response or both. Okay, But the point is that what it does depends on the state that it enters. It depends on the state that it enters. And once you've specified a whole bunch of what the states are, then you can predict the whole behavior of the system. Although there are some very interesting, um, what's the word for it? Uh, impenetrabilities then the whole thing even a completely deterministic system is opaque is opaque to things like what the first state was and so on anyway my point was to take it take to more common sense commonplace uh, examples skinner was all about reinforcement right reward. right everything was reward and punishment he downplayed punishment because he said it was ineffective but that's not true. I mean, the data don't support that. It's perfectly effective. It has some side effects and so on, but so does the reward. Um, yeah, the, the, the application to training a dog, let's say. I love dogs, you know, so I'm sure. training them. So if you reward a dog with food, which is what a lot of people do, it's effective. But you only, you put the dog in a state where it is expecting food. Right. right? And that controls or can uh, there's a name for a whole bunch of repertoire of behavior so the expectation of food creates a repertoire of behavior which is different from the repertoire of behavior created in the social situation I mean uh, uh, sheep to people who do sheep dog trials and so on they their do their dogs are trained socially they never use food to train a sheep dog be ridiculous and if they did it probably wouldn't know how to had herd sheep right <laughs> so that's really the uh, uh, changes that I've tried to make in, in behaviorism in a way they're modest but in another way what they say is when you reward someone you don't just strengthen a response in this kind of automatic way uh, what you do is you create a certain state which has a bunch of repertoire a bunch of different responses and if you're lucky you can select one of those and that's you know, the training is successful so in my in my uh, original exposure to behaviorism and you know all of the pioneers of behaviorism, one of the first things that came to 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 my mind as I was exposed to this uh, you know as the whole class of SNR models, stimulus response models, is that it was overshooting uh, its explanatory power, meaning everything is due to SNR models, and hence when the cognitive revolution came along, that said, well, okay, sure, for certain low-level uh, involvement tasks, maybe the stimulus response model works well, but for certain higher order cognition, it, then the, the SNR models don't do as well. It, 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 is that, do you share that view or do you share the view that everything is ultimately for any organism, nothing but a pairing of SNRs, notwithstanding your, your addition of state issues? Uh, let me elaborate a little bit more. The, the model that I have is 
basically evolutionary. In other words, oh, okay. variation and selection. And re reward does select, it, but it's select only from a repertoire that's been created by its expectations and so on. So in a way, it combines both cognitive and SNR. So the SNR bit is selecting by reward uh, a, a response that is available in a repertoire associated with a certain state. I don't know if I'm making myself... No, no, clear. you are, but let me just make sure. So uh, is it that you're arguing that the, 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 the types of rewards that are going to be effective are, were selected as a result of evolutionary pressures? Is, is, you're, you're using evolution at that level? I think the repertoire, that the, the spontaneous repertoire... Skinner, by the way, had a very good idea when he talked about emitted behavior. And there's no, no doubt organisms do emit behaviors, but they, emit, they don't emit all behaviors at all times. Depending on the situation, which is a sort of a cognitive motivational thing, the repertoire will be different, okay, depending on what the situation is. The selection part is really the mechanisms of contiguity and so on. The reward follows something, it tends to be pulled right. up and so on. But if the if the response was created by a, a different repertoire. In other words, if the animal comes in expecting, let's say, social reward, and you give it food, now the repertoire will shift, and you might not right. actually strengthen right. that response. Right. Uh, are you are you familiar? Forgive me if if this is a, a, a not an impolite question, but a, a silly question. Are you familiar with the distinction between proximate and ultimate explanations? Yeah, of course. Of course. Okay. Very, so I'll, very important. One. Yeah. Right. So of course you're familiar with it. Let me just repeat it for our our viewers. Uh, one of the most fundamental epistemological distinctions for people to understand when it comes to evolutionary theory is that phenomena can be explained at two levels. The proximate level, which is where most science operates, proximate explains the what and the how. So a lot of, you know, pretty much all of the classes of SNR models are explaining the, me the, the mechanism, the mechanistics of how, you know, this stimulus leads to this output and so on. Okay. Ultimate explanations ask the ultimate Darwinian why. Why would the organism have evolved this morphological feature, this behavioral pattern? So within your work, were you tackling often questions at the ultimate level or were you predominantly restricted to the proximate world? I can tell you a very interesting story about that. In the late 70s, I, I, I was, of course, very interested in evolution behavioral ecology and all of these kinds of things. And I was very impressed by the way that optimality theories could, yes. uni could unify a lot of these areas. So I actually put together a book called Limits to Action, uh, an edited book, which had chapters from a couple of economists, I think Kegel and Battaglio, you may know. Yes, yes. Uh, and some biologists, and, and I had a chapter in there too, uh, on the unifying power of optimality theory in all of these areas. Beautiful. It's very exciting and intriguing and so on. Uh, but I actually gave this up because it didn't, it, it, it fails in some dramatic ways. And I can give you one little example. There are probably others if I wasn't so idle and have had a lot of work today. <laughs> <laughs> I'd give you a clear example. But let me give you a, a, an operant conditioning example. Uh, there's something called a fixed interval schedule. It's a very sure. basic thing. The animal pecks a key or presses a lever or something. And the first uh, response after a fixed time, let's say 60 seconds, gives him some food. Then the thing cycles over again. Well, the very very quickly, the animal develops a pattern. The food comes, it waits. Okay, very sensible. Food, next food's not coming for a while. Why waste effort? But then it starts early and starts responding more and more. Why does it start early? Well, because uh, its timing is not 100% accurate. And it's worth wasting a few responses not to delay all the subsequent responses, okay? So it's perfect optimal optimization situation. There are much more complicated situations like choice and so on, which you explain that way. Now, suppose you change the procedure very slightly. The clock, which starts the interval, you change it changes so that it doesn't start when the reinforcement the food is delivered. It starts with the first response. It starts mm. with the first response. Okay, now the optimal behavior is trivially simple, right? The animal gets food, responds, and then waits. Do they do that? No, they absolutely do not. They do not. They, they treat the whole thing as if the clock had been started by the food. And the reason is memory limitations. They can't remember that first response and separate it from all other responses. 
it's a cognitive limitation, if you like. So the full ex to provide something approaching a full explanation for that phenomenon, you need to understand the process, and the pr process involves memory. Optimality won't cut it. And there are other more technical experiments we did and so on that showed um, that, that although with the standard procedure, the behavior was optimal, you could make small changes and the behavior would deviate from optimal. So I gave up optimization as an adequate explanation for what I was interested in at that time, which was learning in animals. Well, when I when I think about optimization, it takes me in several directions. If if I want to root it in an evolutionary framework, I can think, for example, of optimal foraging theory. The right. idea, right? So that would be an example of using the optimality framework within an evolutionarily relevant domain. Okay, so that's one. And it and works much better there. By it, way. it does exactly. That's that's why I was surprised that you had given up because there are some wonderful studies that support optimal foraging behavior for a whole class of animals. Now, yes. another area where you, you, you know, you hear the word optimization, well, I'm going to speak about two other areas. One is, of course, in economics where you have utility maximization, right. whereby you're trying to optimize utility, whatever that means. And then the third area, which is a lot more analytical, is an operations research where you're trying to either minimize or maximize some objective function, right? So you've got, for example, the traveling salesman problem. Uh, I, I, the traveling salesman has to go to cities A, B, C, D, E. Each city has a cost associated to it, for example, gas costs. In which order should the salesman travel these cities, returning back to the place where he started, as to minimize gas efficiency? So I think... In some contexts, the optimization paradigm works really well, and maybe in others it doesn't. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I mean, for solving problems, it's really, really good. And for understanding natural environments, that when you put the animal in an unnatural environment, it doesn't work so well. I was interested in process, the mechanism. So right. I didn't give it, give it up in general. But, but, but my original hope that the whole thing would be unified. I should say one other thing. If I had factored into my optimization model, the constraints imposed by yes. memory, then it would have worked. Yes, which by the way, in operations research, you have usually maximize or minimize this subject to these constraints. It is built. Exactly. Uh, okay, one or two more questions about this uh, shop talk and then we'll get into your book. Did you, I, I, I don't know the exact timeline of when B.F. Skinner passed away. Did you overlap with him? Did you get to know him? He, ex he examined me in a very generous way for, for my knowledge of French. Oh. And he, <laughs> and he was the chairman. I think he was. I, I, should, I should check my autobiography to see if I'm right. But as I recall, he was the chairman of my examining committee, you know, my PhD. Examiner. Oh, wow. So, so, so he, was, he was still around. He came to all the lab meetings. He wasn't actually doing experiments. Uh, he did start his experiments later under the influence of a, a chap called Epstein. I'm forgetting his first name. And he did some very clever experiments with Epstein on self-knowledge in pigeons and things like that. But at my, at my time, he was writing more these grandiose things about the world and applying Skinnerian theory to and economics and so on and so on and so on. So he wasn't actually doing experiments at, at that time. The people doing experiments were, well, you won't know any of these people, but Hernsing was one of them, of course. Uh, a guy called Charlie Catania, a wonderful guy called George Reynolds who died, committed suicide in California years later, oh, very, wow. very sad. But he was a brilliant guy and a very nice man. So that was just a handful of this. Oh, and the, the, the figure you will have heard of in the basement of Memorial Hall uh, was George Bakershie. Oh, right. right. Who wandered around at night and sort of lived in his lab, never gave any lectures. I think he was basically supported by S.S. Stevens, who was the psychophysics guru and chief uh, the, the big the big man at the lab smitty stevens would we would we would we find many of these uh, wonderful anecdotes in your autobiography you will find some of them yeah oh wonderful and there are also uh, there's also issue some one or two issues of the journal of the experimental analysis of behavior which is the skinnerian journal j-e-a-b which has some uh, comments on this, but there is some in my uh, in my autobiography. Yes, probably more than lay readers like it. <laughs> if I were to put you on the spot and say, of all of the, I'm sure incredibly brilliant people that you've met in your life, uh, whether they be psychologists or other academics, 
Is there one that stands out as uniquely above the rest in terms of their giant intellect? Well, unfortunately, I never met him, but Richard Feynman is my hero. Oh, is that right? Right. I mean, he's a brilliant expositor. I always cite his little book, QED, when people say to climate scientists, I've had brief interactions, they say, you're not a climate scientist, you, know, you can't understand. I said, well, you know, Richard Feynman explained quantum electrodynamics perfectly well to a general audience. <laughs> if he can do it for that, surely someone can do it for climate science. You know, I read, I read the, surely you must be joking, Mr. Feynman, and, and I, I was very uh, connected to him because uh, what what impressed me the most about him, and I've I discuss it in my forthcoming book. I have a book t tentatively titled "A Recipe for the Good Life," where I talk about uh, science as play. So, in one of the chapters, I talk about uh, you know life as a playground, and I say that even serious pursuits can be approached using a, you know a playful mindset. So that research is a form of play, right? Variation, variation. Very yeah. exactly. And yeah. so, in that chapter, I refer to a whole bunch of you know really luminary people. Who, who were very playful. And so I use the example of Richard Feynman, who was a partier and a bongo player. And so that you don't have to fit the stereotype, the archetype of the really boring, stuffy professor, which, don't. sorry? Yes. Don't, don't fit that stereotype. And, and incidentally, if I can speak of myself, I don't know how much you follow my stuff. I mean, I can do all sorts of satirical stuff. So I can be very serious and talk to John Stadden about uh, proximate and ultimate explanations. And I can also don a wig to make fun of the woke people. So I don't think that you lose being a serious and profound thinker if you have a multifaceted you know, set of traits that define your personhood, right? Right. I mean, uh, yeah. in the 90s, I wrote satirical things about postmodernism and so on. I wrote something called Lemuel Lemuel Peep's Time Traveler about an Atlantic Magazine uh, editorial meeting. And the Feynman book, I used to give copies to my graduate students. I mean, I, I thought that surely a joking Mr. Feynman would be a fine thing for, for them to read. Oh, great. <laughs> Wonderful. Did you ever read, speaking of postmodernism, did you ever read the book Higher Superstition by Gross and Levitt? Uh, years ago, I think I did. Yeah, I, I don't really remember. I, I think that might be the book. I, I always refer to that book to, to my lis listeners because I think they were some of the original, you know, serious academics who were, you know, you know, alerting the world about some of this nonsense. So for anyone out there who wants to look how far back they call that, I think the book came out in the 90s. One of yeah. them is a biologist, the other one's a mathematician, and they were spot on with some of the lunacy we're now seeing downstream. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I, know. I know. All right, let's turn to this book right here. Uh, first, give us the broad synopsis. And then what I did, John, is I just, I haven't had the chance to read it yet. I will. But I went through the chapters and whichever titles struck my fancy, I thought we'd talk about them. But first, give us a broad synopsis of the entire book, please. Yeah, well, the book sort of grew up over the years. I wrote essays and so on and put them all together. It's in five parts, really. Uh, uh, the first part is about really science and religion, because I, I inadvertently entered into a debate with a distinguished evolutionary biologist. You probably know his name. Do you care sharing who it is? Yeah, Jerry Coyne. Oh, oh, he's been on my show. Yes, I mean, he's a very... We agree on everything but this point. Ah, okay. <laughs> anyway, anyway I, I pointed out that um, there really is no different, no practical, no behavioral difference between religion and secular humanism. The, uh, the obvious difference is that the moral scriptures, the, the orders for behavior... For, from religion come from religious texts, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know, the Sharia, whatever. But uh, secular humanists also have them. They also have moral uh, prescriptions. They're just not as orderly. They're not laid out in a written form. Their sources are more obscure. They come from you know, probably people like John Stuart Mill, John Rawls, and so on and so on. But my point was that just because the religious dicta, behavioral dicta, are linked to stories which the uh, atheists believe to be false doesn't make them any worse, any less 
true, if you like, than the dicta of the secular humanists, which are linked to nothing at all. They, they just believe them, okay? And they think they're so obvious, you know, that they must come from science. They don't come from science. So the whole point of that first section is to emphasize the distinction between faith and fact. The scientific facts by themselves don't tell you what to do. They're, they're like tools in a toolbox. The tools don't tell you you're going to build a table or a chair. Uh, or another uh, simile is uh, science is like a map. It's not a destination. It tells you how to get somewhere. It doesn't tell you where you're supposed to be going. So that's the first part. The second part's all on evolution. How, uh, there's a lot of criticism of evolution. I am a huge, huge fan of Charles Darwin. I think he was a wonderful guy, uh, much maligned. Um, and uh, I think part of the problem is the sort of evolutionary fundamentalists, like my colleague uh, Richard Dawkins, who used to be my colleague years ago, uh, and others. Who used to be people. meaning that you've had a fissure in your relationship? Is that what you mean? Or? No, no. Well, I used to be at Oxford. I oh, right. Okay. I see. And so on. I haven't corresponded with them in a while, but I used, we used to correspond a little bit. Anyway, uh, Richard is... He, he argues that evolution is all about small random variations, these small random variations. And, and Darwin did too, of course, because he didn't know any genetics. He, had, he was a uniformitarian, which sure. is the uh, preferred philosophy of science in those days. So he just said small random variations, although he knew of massive exceptions, correlated variation, birds with big beaks have big feet. You know, if you select for feet, you get the beaks and so on and so on. So he knew it, that it wasn't really true, but uh, he, uh, he he sort of settled for that as a kind of default position in a state of ignorance. Well, the, the fact is that genetic variation may be random and small. Well, it's not really random. It's correlated uh, linked genes and all this kind of stuff. So it's not completely random. But even if it was random, the phenotypic results of these changes are not random and not necessarily small. And so uh, I guess there was a guy whose name I'm blocking on, you probably remember it, who argued that uh, the ver pattern of variation is directional. Right. Uh, that's going for me a little far. But the fact is variation is not random. Phenotypic variation is not random. It, it's structured. And there's some very interesting da data from uh, African lake fish which are incredibly similar in different lakes, even though they've evolved uh, quite separately. They're not even genetically similar, apparently. Um, there's a wonderful guy, again, whose name I uh, will recall after it's relevant, <laughs> who's done a couple of TV shows on this, which are the best I've referred to it in the book, who's um, done wonderful TV shows, making this point that there was sort of, a, if you play the tape twice, Sometimes you get very similar results, which argues against complete randomness. Anyway, the point of all this, the philosophical point of all this, is that you can only blame selection for what you have if the variation is completely random. If it's structured, then more and more of the weight for what's happening goes to the variation bit and not the selection bit. And that's sort of obvious, I think. Anyway, so that's that section. The next section is on the profession, the problems of the profession of, of science. And there are all sorts of changes that have taken place. The biggest change, I think, is that um, science is no longer a vocation for most people. It's a profession. And you enter through graduate school, as a, you have, nowadays people go through year after year of postgraduate training and so on, postdoctoral training. So it's a profession, uh, which limits the variation, which limits what people can do, how they can do it, and so on and so forth. In the old days, and this ties into the issue of support of science, the funding for science, which is monopsonistic. That's an economics term. I'm sure you know what it means. The point is that it, when I was, for, for example, doing my science, I, I may have changed a little bit, but probably in a bad direction. I had basically one place I could go to get research money, which is the National Institutes of Health. That's a very, very unhealthy situation, not because anybody intentionally censors but because it limits the, var the variation of the people that you get, the ideas that you may have, and so on. So that, that, that's, that's one, one problem. Is, is, uh, is the, uh, and the other, another aspect to it is the vocation uh, allows people to go off in any old crazy direction they want to. 
Whereas if you're in a profession, you are evaluated, and you're evaluated now by criteria which are utterly irrelevant, utterly, utterly irrelevant. The number of publications is completely irrelevant. I mean, Darwin would have never made it. Exactly. Rated. I mean, he took 20 years to publish his major book, for God's sakes. Why? Was he lazy? No, no, he wasn't lazy. He was just very, very conscientious. He he wanted to collect so much data that the result was indubitable as a matter of fact let me let me interrupt you before you go on to sections yeah. four and five so let's talk about first quickly about section one and jerry coin because i don't want to forget these these interjections i want to yeah, make yeah. so I, I understand why uh you, you know you disagree with jerry coin on, on that issue it seems as though you would be aligned with stephen j gould's noma principle would that be correct the two magisteria exactly so based on what you were saying that's what you're basically arguing right the science is here morality is here they can both operate in non-overlapping magisteria and everybody's happy so it's an accommodationist perspective is that your position in a way but i wouldn't want to rely on stephen gould (laughs) i would run on david hume who separated fact and value i mean he said fact you know, he has all these famous quotes about, you know, scratching what my, my finger, I would prefer over the death of a million Indians or something equally politically incorrect that he wrote. Uh, and I think he spoke the truth. A fact by itself doesn't direct you anywhere. You've got to have some kind of value system behind it. And that value system is not provable by the methods of science. It's not provable by the methods of science. Not that science is about values. I think... Um, What's the uh, Sam Harris? I think has made the. Well, point. I was just going to say exactly Sam Harris, Sam but not Harris just made the point. Yeah, you need values to do science, but the facts themselves do not in, uh, entail values. But and in fact, I have a little paper coming out in Academic Questions called "The Faith of Science." You need to believe some things in order to do science. You need to believe in truth. You need to be believe that the natural world doesn't change spontaneously. In fact, some people have argued that it's the Christian faith in the orderly world created by God, which allowed science to develop, and what inhibited science in the Islamic world. Now, Jim Galkalili is a wonderful broadcaster, argues against that. He says that they were, uh, you probably know more than I do about this, but there were political changes which suppressed science in the Islamic world and so on. But certainly a belief that uh, the world can be changed capriciously is totally inimical to science. You can't do science unless you believe there's something to study, there's something fixed to study. And you've got to believe in truth, you've got to believe in exchanging information, and so on. There are, so there's a huge uh, faith system associated with science. It's not, should be, should be widely, widely recognized. I tried to write about it in this little paper. But the facts themselves are just bricks. They're not a, they're not a building. You've got to have a motive to build the building. But would you disagree with the position that morality can be studied from an evolutionary perspective just like any other phenomenon? In other words, morale, you don't agree with that? No, no, I agree. I oh, okay, because I was going to say that there's a tremendous amount of studies, whether it be, you know, uh, modeling studies or evolutionary-based studies or cross-cultural or comparative animal studies that that, sh- that demonstrate how morality would have perfectly evolved using, you know, scientific evolutionary processes yes. that you don't need sort of a supernatural explanation whereby morality is somehow outside of the, you know, material experience. But there's this problem. Morality, I mean, E.O. Wilson's written about this sure. too. Um, there's this problem that morality evolved in a world that's very different from the world we live in now. True. Very, very different. Uh, that's number one. Number two, back to Hume. Just because morality exists doesn't make it right. It doesn't. The right. notion of right and wrong comes from elsewhere. It comes from faith. I, I mean, that gives you no way to decide between this morality and that. That's <laughs> a problem. That's because it's not. It's not a, a rational thing. Um, another point would be traditional morality, because it evolved in a completely different uh, world, very, very different. I mean, it's huge, the reproductive rate of different classes, different kinds of people, it's just crazily different. Um, it might be actually very bad for our situation now, who knows? So it's all to me an open question. That, I have no that, that, by the way, is called what you referred to in, in your last point. That's uh, you, you. I'm sure you know in, in evolutionary theory, it's called the mismatch hypothesis. The idea yeah. that sometimes you have uh, 
adaptations that would have been perfectly uh, adaptive in an ancestral environment and in that's the modern era. So that's really what you're talking about, correct? Yeah, well, like our love for sugar, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, uh, there are other things like obesity, blah, blah, blah. There are a lot of things like that. The, the yeah, we could try and figure out what would be better for our situation now, but I, I don't see very many people doing that. And also, it's very, very difficult because you don't really, you can't, evolution's not predictable. Evolution yeah. is not really predictable. So it's a, it's a tough one. <laughs> Let me talk about your second and third uh, classes before we go on to number four and five. Uh, you mentioned Darwin. Uh, this is a personal story, but I think that you'd really get a kick out of it. Uh, earlier this past week, I had been invited to Florida to 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 participate in a sh in a show in a popular show, and on one of the days, my wife and I went to uh, Palm Beach to you know just hang out and visit. And we found an antiquarian bookstore, a, a rare book bookstore. Wow. Palm we, Beach. In Palm, in, was Mr. Trump there? And Mr. Trump was not there. I did not have the <laughs> pleasure of meeting him. But in any case, uh, as I walked around and I started chatting with the gentleman who was you know, working there, I actually released a, a short clip of, of that interaction uh, in that store. The most, you're ready for this, John? The most expensive item in that store i mean and they had everything i mean they had stuff from you know every imaginable great book that you could think of the the most expensive book at four hundred thousand dollars and i stood a few inches away from it was a first edition on the origin of species four hundred thousand dollars in immaculate immaculate condition I have an edition, first edition of Zoonomia. I don't think it make quite. A it's not quite four hundred thousand. No. <laughs> so that's uh, on your second point. On the third one, sort of the, the 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 professionalization, if I can say that way, of the of science. I totally agree with you. One one of the things that defines my personhood is that I am authentic to a fault. Uh, so that, for example, I've never been able to play the careerist game and any any benefits that have accrued to me have come as a consequence of me just presenting myself to the world and take it or leave it so that i never modulated my behavior in a careerist way now some might say that harmed me but of course in the totality of things it probably didn't because i'm i'm likely to be a lot more known than almost every professor who walks around if i can be immodest oh. No question, God, you are over famous. <laughs> Thank you. You're very kind coming from someone as illustrious as you. So so for me, this idea of, you know, uh, playing the publish or of course, I've published tons of paper, but I did it with kind of a childlike wonder because I was just excited to find things. I published in all sorts of journals, not caring about publishing in the right, unique group of specific journals. So I published in medicine and in economics and in politics and in consumer psychology. And in, whereas, of course, when I would go for certain interviews with universities, that would be construed as something that is weak in my CV. Why are you so unfocused, Professor Saad? Why aren't you publishing in only these three journals? And so I think that this whole gaming of science, this whole careerist stuff is a death blow to the sort of childlike wonder of how a scientist should truly be. Amen, I agree. Let me ask you, ask you what, what was your flexibility and openness helped by not being in the psychology department, being in a business school, right? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know if it's a function of whether it's psychology or business school. I think it's a function. And here I'm going to be quite uh, complimentary to my university, even though I've got a lot of beef with them on other issues. Uh, they have always stayed out of my way in terms of how, what topics I wanted to study, uh, which journal. So I never had someone knock on my door and say, hey, how come you're not publishing more in business journals? As long as I was being productive, going, doing good stuff, Nobody ever. St now, I don't know if that's a function of the discipline, maybe, but I really think that the ethos of the university was as long as you're productive, we're out of your way. Now, of course, on the downside, if I were to criticize my university, it is it scores very, very high on the woke meter. Right. So like everywhere else, like yeah. everywhere else, although I truly think that we, we're we're probably sort of the Olympic champions uh, everywhere is bad. But, you know, it, I mean. You know, you may or may not know this. Uh, at at Concordia, 
you know, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was uh, deplatformed when he was prime minister of uh, Israel. And this was back in, I think, exactly. So, so, so we we have kind of a unique constellation of of woke activists. But uh, overall, to to your point, I think that I've been very, very fortunate that I've never had anybody say, "Hey, you know, play the careerist game better." Why is it that you think that psychology would have been more uh, confining than in the business school? Is there? Do, do you... Well, I had just an academic department, brother. I mean, business is. Has to be interdisciplinary, right? it, but, but yeah, right. Uh, it, it's harder for it to focus. Now, my personal career, looking back on it, I never had any inkling. I mean, I followed a totally conventional career, really. I, mean, I just published, but I did it because I wanted to, and it was interesting and so forth. I was in an area that had no political significance at all. Animal learning, right? Who cares? Uh, so it, it it wasn't an. It was only years after I retired. Dude that I became aware of how political the university had become. It was a huge shock to me, actually. You know, I'm glad that you said this because let me ask you this very delicately because I'm not, it's, not a, it's not a judgment implication. You certainly are a lot more vocal, at least certainly in the, in, the, in the email list that we're both a part of. I constantly see you there, but yet I wouldn't have seen you in all those other you know, previous years being vocal and fighting against the wokeness. Is it because that was a careerist, you know, decision that you made or you just weren't aware of it? You were too... I mean, in the 90s, I I didn't start it, but I came in early on. It was a a faculty publication called the Faculty Newsletter Mm. at Duke. And I, I had a fellowship at that time, so I didn't have to teach, so I had some free time. And I, I took it on as an editor, trying to get interaction with different groups in particular interaction between the postmodernists and their critics and um, boy, boy you can imagine what a huge success that was <laughs> i mean i would publish an article by somebody critical of some of the postmodern nonsense and invite responses there was only one person who ever responded um i'll tell you who it was it's not interesting her, her name is barbara hernstein smith you ever heard of her it rings a bell tell me more about her well, she was Dick Hernstein's second wife. Okay. He, he then moved on to a third wife. So she was unmarried when, when, when she was. Right. But she's very, very bright. She's, she's postmodern. She would assign books to her students who had almost no science training at all, right? Uh, she, instructed to read about Quaternions, uh, Jerry Edelman's Neural Darwinism. Yes. Wonderful book I knew. Oh, anyway. yeah. Um, Nobel Prize winner. Nobel Prize winner, great guy. He gave me a plug for the Adaptive Behavior book. Um, yeah, so it was ridiculous. <laughs> How could they possibly grasp what's going on here? And so, on? But I, it was impossible. I published uh, humor columns, satirical columns. You know, I wrote some of them. Other people wrote other ones. Um, I, I, I'm afraid I publicized the fact that Frederick Jameson, who was a leading postmodernist, had in fact won the International Bad Writing Award. <laughs> You know, things of this sort. This <laughs> is now the Judith Butler Award, correct? Well, Judith, oh, is it really? Well, Judith Butler figured in, in, in these uh, discussions, <laughs> as, you, as you can imagine, and a lot of other famous feminists and so on. It didn't elicit any great interest. It folded after I had to go on to other things that, that other editors were not so interested. So that was my only involvement with this kind of stuff. And it, it seemed to me so risible so absolutely ridiculous how could it have any real effect you know so here here's my position you tell me what you think of this yeah. now in your case I'm, I'm delighted to hear that your your non-involvement was due to your ignorance of the issues at hand of the effect of the, of, of the effect right and yeah. and i'm, and I'm I told there was this crap out there but i just didn't think it mattered you know? exactly okay fair enough now i think that for most professors the reason why they don't get involved is not so much because of any, you know, uh, una- you know being unaware or, or being ignorant about the consequences of these bad ideas. I truly think that academia, and, and please feel free to critique me if you think I'm wrong. I think that academia selects on herd mentality and cowardice. Yes, of course, you have to be intelligent as an academic, but you are not picking the intellectually brawny guys. You're not picking the intellectual Navy SEALs. You're picking K 
castrated folks who will be stay in your lane professors who will do their little research plus epsilon who will have a quiet dignified career within their very small silos of influence but you're not developing team six navy seal types and the fact that the self the selection process is such results in most people being apathetic, cowardly, quiet. And that's why we end up with the stuff that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind, because no one stands up and says, hey, enough of this bullshit. I can't stand this. I'm going to intervene. What do you think of this general theory? Well, we we certainly have a, a bunch of conformists. I mean, there's no question about that. I've wondered, too, uh, why it is. I, I got into academia by a series of accidents, really. Uh, I didn't follow, I followed a semi-conventional path, but hopping about and so on was, was not, not really conventional. I got into an area where I was completely insulated from all, all this. I, I was excited by the research. I just did the research, you know. Uh, I felt really no pressure to conform to, to anything but writing good papers, finding important results. Um, but there is a selection for conformity. It occurred to me years ago that the tenure process, which should protect non-conformity, exactly. because it's seven years, allows the existing faculty to sort of filter out the, the, the deviants. You know, right. If you, you know if this guy's going to be a bit of a problem. And in fact, when I was, um, uh, well, early on in my career at Duke, I remember there was a young guy who I thought was very, very creative in language, not in my area. And, but they never, they never gave him tenure, and I could never really understand why that was. He was obviously very creative and ahead of the game and so on. But he wasn't pushy. I mean, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't a demanding type character. And subsequently, he and his wife published a couple of wonderful books on language. And he did get a job at another university and so on. But I, I remember I was being really puzzled by that. Yes, uh, I'll give a counterexample. <laughs> I had a colleague uh, that was hired, um, and I, I argued for hiring him. He had a theory that was completely opposite to mine about something, about timing, actually. I was interested in animal timing. But I thought this would be good, creative, to get a guy with a completely different uh, mindset and so on and so on. Let's, and he had a terrific CV, really good CV. Let's hire him. Well, we hired him, and he didn't even want to talk to me. He didn't even want to talk to me. We, were, we had labs on the same floor, you know, I so said, let's have some combined lab meetings, no, 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 no dice. And I suspect, and a couple, one of my postdocs had the same idea, that he had, in fact, faked some of this data. I can't prove it. You oh. know. But this immaculate CV was not an accident, Pat. I, I know I would never allege it, but... That was a suspicion, but the fact that he didn't want to talk about his research right. is, to me, is it's there's a problem. You know, Houston, we have a problem. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because that would have been, could it would have been very fruitful. To have you know, I argue this, he argues that, you know, and so on. So, but it turns out there are a lot of people who hate that. They just they, they just can't cope with it. How it is that the academic system seems to have selected those people, I, I, I think you're probably right, but I, I don't really understand it. I, I also think, I mean, beyond the, the, you know, the, 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 the position that I'm taking on sort of the cowardly professor, I actually think that a lot of professors are not intellectuals. And what I mean by that is that they are professional careerists, right? So they've learned that there's a set of, you know, bars. obstacles, bars that I have to pass and then I'll do it. Whereas an intellectual is someone, look, I, I was excited to sit and talk to you. We had never met, uh, you know, we've sort of, we've been on the same, uh, you know, uh, email list, but I'm excited for no other reason than the intellectual exchange that I was likely to have with someone who has spent their entire, and so, you know, be, you know, Christopher Hitchens was an intellectual. He didn't have a PhD and he didn't get tenure and he wasn't a professor. No, nor did Darwin. Uh, now Newton <laughs> was a pro yeah, okay. now Newton was a professor, but he didn't have a PhD either. Oh, so, of so, 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 being an intellectual, you'd like to think should come with being a professor, but the reality is it doesn't. Not so. Not so. Absolutely. Is there something that we can do if we were you and I starting new universities today? Is there a set of paths that we can take to create greater intellectualism? amongst the academic amongst class the academics 
Gosh, that's a tough one. I really don't know. Uh, I can tell you what not to do, which is count publications. Right. Count citations of those publications. I mean, these are really, really bad uh, estimates. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I knew um, W.D. Hamilton a little bit. Oh, yes. I've, I've watched it. He is a terrible, it's a terrible lecture. It's just terrible, terrible. He published, I think I even mentioned it in the book, one paper a year, right? Yeah. But boy, were they papers. But they were serious papers. (laughs) Let me just mention, let me fill it in for the reviewers, uh, for the viewers who who do not know who you're talking about. Uh, Bill Hamilton is, you know, one of the giants of uh, certainly kind of uh, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology, sociobiology. He's the the, the guy who did kin selection. He tragically died, I think, in 2000 on a trip to Africa. So this is really one of the giants. uh, And uh, but I didn't know that he was a a terrible lecturer. So that That was was awful. Oh, is that? (laughs) At least the one I one or two I went to were awful, but of course the ideas were great. I mean, it wasn't, right. It wasn't well, it's, since we're engaging in a bit of gossip, uh, but this is of someone who is still alive, but it, it needs to go on the record. Uh, another very famous uh, evolutionary biologist who is still alive is Robert Trivers, for whom I have nothing but scientific admiration. I mean, you know, the the kind of breadth of stuff that he's done is just out of this world, it's, yeah, yeah. right? But here's the problem. I tried to get him on the show. Apparently, he was a fan, and we, we we tried to connect, and he went completely wacko on me in a way that is completely irrational. And, of course, for those of you who don't know, uh, Bob is a rather, I'm going to put it mildly and say irascible character, but he, he has suffered from mental illness. And I, I'm truly... Uh, disappointed that I was never able to yeah. make the conversation happen because I think he is a historical figure and it's, I really regret that we couldn't do it. Yeah, I share your regret. I don't know him personally. I'm not sure. I may have seen him talk, but I, I don't know. But you didn't overlap at Harvard when he was a student and you were there? No, I don't. Well, I, I, I've taken one biology course in my life. <laughs> Yet you're professor of biology emeritus at Duke. There you go. <laughs> So I, I was in the psychology department. Yes, of course. Uh, okay, you want to finish up sections four and five, and then we can do some organic stuff? Yeah, I will I will uh, quickly do it. The last section, I won't say much about it. It's about history of science. Uh, I'm very critical of how political it has become, and the fact that many there's a whole bunch of distinguished historians at Harvard, female, all of them, who are simply awful. They don't know the science. Um, the most famous one, I think, is Naomi Oreskes, writes editorials for uh, for Nature and Science uh, on things like uh, 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 smoking, secondhand smoke, uh, climate change. She calls climate change critics deniers, you know, so that kind right. of gives it a... Um, and, and another lady, and there's one I was going to include in the book, but in fact, it, it, it became too long. And she's a lady who wrote about behaviorism. She she lives in the building where Skinner was working. Right. And she doesn't have a bloody clue. She thought that Skinner's the, the only book of Skinner in that area that she references is Skinner's book, Behavior of Organisms, which is his, his dissertation, basically. Which she said, where he said, she said he studied ants. Oh, yeah. Maybe she mixed them up with E.O. Wilson. Maybe she did. <laughs> But she said things like uh, this thing measured the the voltage measured the the current measured between three volts and four amps. Yeah, right. I'm not kidding. Right. Wow. I mean, uh, this woman is utterly, utterly ignorant of of what she writes about. But she writes well. They all write well. Right. They all write well. So you've got this kind of novelistic uh, account of history. Anyway, so that's the history part. But the, the 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 penultimate part is on social science. Yes, which I think is a total, total disaster, and one reason for that disaster or symptom of it is its subdivision. Yes. Now I went back and looked at a little history in in, in the early late 1800s, early 1900s. The British Association, which is the general science association, had a half a dozen sections, four or five sections, and then there was a move to increase the number of sections. There was a lot of resistance. They said, this is really going to be a bad idea. We shouldn't have this and so on and so on. Well, the American Psychological Association has 54 sections. 
each of those sections has its own journals, its own criteria, its own little self-reinforcing group of uh, critics. Right? Or as the kids like to say today, echo chambers. Echo chambers, bubbles, echo chambers. And the sociological association, there are a smaller number of sociologists, but they still have 53 sections. I mean, this is utter, utter madness, right? But they, they can play at doing science because we have academic journals, we have peer review, that's all good, right? Uh, it's a peer-reviewed paper in the Journal of Weirdo Studies or whatever it's called. <laughs> So we must be scientists. And of course, they come up with utter nonsense, which is yes. completely, completely rubbish for the most part. And uh, I'll give you one example. Sure. Shut up. Which is systemic racism. Oh, yes. Systemic racism. When I first encountered this, before it was kind of really a thing, you know, it was a big deal, I thought, well, how do you measure this? What, what are they talking about? You know? And all I could find, the only uh, uh, data for it was individual racial disparities. That was, the, that was right. the evidence for it. But obviously, there are many, many reasons for racial disparities, which you can study. You can study uh, education, culture, background, biology, all of these things. But by calling it systemic racism, you don't have to do any of that. Exactly. And you also can't get rid of it. You know, it's there forever. And now it drives all of the racial madness that we're, we're living with. And I, I could give you a personal anecdote about it, but I'll let you, I'll stop for now. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, uh, what I was going to say is, in comparing the social sciences to the natural sciences, uh, here's what I've often argued is the problem with the social sciences. It's not that the, the, the epistemological issues that, say, sociologists want to study are any less sciencey than that which physicists study. As a matter of fact, I would support here what Auguste Comte said several hundred years ago when he created his hierarchy of the sciences and he put sociology at the apex, arguing that it's a lot harder to study human beings and oh. social systems involving human beings than to study the, you know, the, the crystal structure right. of, of, yeah. of some molecule, right? Right, right it is. Yes. But here is where the social sciences fail in my view, uh, John, and, you, you, and I'll of course want to hear your thoughts on it. E.O. Wilson reintroduced the term consilience in the late 1990s in his brilliant book, which every viewer right here should be heading off and buying right now. Consilience refers to unity of knowledge, right? Building bridges. And of course, as an evolutionist, he was arguing that you could unify, you know, the humanities and the social sciences and the natural sciences under sort of a, an evolutionary framework. Well, I've argued that the, the reason why the natural sciences are more prestigious uh, than the social sciences is not because sociologists are dumber than physicists. It's because in sociology, you can have parasitic ideas that are antithetical to science creep into your work, whereas it's a lot harder to do so when you're studying the chemical structure of whatever, something. And therefore, you can have bifurcations. So in sociology, we can have people who think that humans are biological beings, or you can have people who believe that everything is a social construction and there is no biology when it comes to human beings. Well, if you already have that bifurcation, there is no place for us to build a tree, a, a coherent tree of knowledge where we can hang all of our knowledge. Whereas in physics, we do have coherence. There aren't uh, you know, chemists who are for the periodic table and chemists who are against the periodic table. It is part of the core knowledge. And so this is why, for example, in the behavioral sciences, the world that I operate in, I argue that we could have the same theoretical coherence if we adopt evolutionary theory as the organizing framework to understand human behavior. So do you, do you buy my argument that the key fundamental difference between the social sciences and the natural sciences is one has achieved consilience and the other one is as far away from consilience as possible? Well, I would agree that, that it's the result, and I would agree also that social sciences are incredibly difficult. They're, they're difficult, but you can't. I, I'm an experimentalist. I grew up doing experiments. You can't do exper experiments on most of these questions. You simply can't, either for ethical reasons, practical reasons, or time reasons. I mean, if you want to look at the effect of education, you have to look 20, 30 years down the road. And it's very, very hard to do that. There are a handful of longitudinal studies and so on, uh, and they have kind of monopoly position in it. But it's very, very difficult to do. But I think the the result has been this vociferousness, you're splitting into all these little areas, which allows people to do nonsense, which is, uh, 
what's the word for it, verified by their peers. We're all doing the same nonsense of views, the same jargon that I do, and you uh, appeal to the same unverified concepts as I do. I'm cool with that. We can publish a paper. I mean, that's that, that's sort of how it how it goes, you know. Um, there's in the book I mentioned uh, this concept of trans science. I don't know if you've heard. Yes, that. yes, of course. It's nothing to do with transgender. I'm happy to say. Um, trans meaning transdisciplinary. Is that what you mean? No, meaning that it's a scientific question that can't be answered scientifically. Oh, I see. Alvin Weinberg came up with it. I think it's a very good point. There are a lot of these very important societal questions we can ask. You can you express it precisely. It is a scientific question, but by golly, you don't have the methods to answer it scientifically. Now, so if you have weak science, the political stuff comes in, right? Um, if the science is weak, then all these other things which are kept at bay by the hard sciences uh, uh, flow into the soft sciences and corrupt them. And that's where we are now. I don't know what you can do about it. I'll eliminate all social science. But uh, I think that's sort of where we where we are. And this systemic racism is an example. I mean, this is unmeasurable, eternal. I mean, I'm reading for another uh, uh, person. Um, these books by Ibram Kendi. Oh boy, oh boy! I'm sorry to hear that you're doing that. Yes, horrible. I mean, horrible, really. And and uh, D'Angelo, and that uh, what they spout is literal nonsense. It, it really is literal. I mean, Kendi assumes all people are the same. No, not true, Kendi. But everybody accepts it. Why? Why do they accept it? I don't know. Because he's a noble person of color, and if you uh, co contradict him, you're engaging in uh, epistemological violence against him. Oh, did you talk about epistemological violence? There's a little video I ran into uh, Peter Bergosian. He's trying to engage. Oh yeah, sure. Social scientists, and uh, I mean, I listen to what those kids say. That they're obviously smart, highly verbal, so on and so on. But they're complete bloody idiots. How yeah. how how did this happen? How did it happen? It's called the parasitic mind, John. That's how yeah, it happened. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you ask them the question they can't answer they say well it makes me feel unsafe well go see a therapist you know? I mean, come on so in your in your book uh, i mean you of course uh you know enunciate uh, enumerate a whole bunch of problems in all these different areas is there though some solution some you know uh, inoculate so in, in the parasitic mind i was very mindful to both I've only read a bit of the parasitic mind i'm sorry oh no worries no, no worries yeah, thank ahead. you I, I hope that you will eventually read the whole okay. thing i think you'll enjoy it uh i i offer you know i explain the diseases of the of the mind that are taking place but then like any good physician it's not good enough to offer a, di a diagnosis you have to offer a a you know a, a cure and so i i try in chapters seven and eight to offer some, you know, vaccines, some inoculations against these parasitic idea pathogens. So in your case, in your book, is there a place where you say, you know, here are some concrete things that we could do to ameliorate the situation? Uh, I'm embarrassed to say not really. I'm really not sure what to do. I'm really not sure right. what to do. It's so widespread and so systemic. I mean, the anecdote I was going to tell you was in 2020, uh, my uh, department, course I've been long away from the department I have no longer teaching and so on and so on. Um, sent around a memo urging everybody to sign on to a petition the department as a whole is supposed to sign on to the shutdown stem petition oh right Do you remember that uh, yes and I wrote I didn't take it seriously I said well if there was a dissent column I'd be inclined to sign for that and I gave a link to this blog I'd written on systemic racism and that caused a riot Actually, cause a riot. I mean, I was taken off the email list. I got two or three people responding, <laughs> agreeing with me. One of them said, "Don't use my email address, my email." I mean, it was. I thought, what? You know, I, I was completely unprepared. That's been my world for twenty-eight years, John. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe it. Who are these guys? You know, yeah. it's like the movie. Remember that movie? Who are those guys? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm go I'm going to be optimistic here and say that. The tide is slowly starting to, to turn. I certainly see more and more people writing to me saying, uh, you know, you've invigorated me to, to have the courage to speak out at my, you know, parent 
school teacher meeting and so on. So I think that the silent majority, John, and I'm sure you agree with this, are complete. They detest this, but they are cowed to silence. They're they're afraid. They're they're worried. They're they're too concerned about their daughter's graduation ceremony tomorrow to worry about these grand ideas. I think that once we're able to find a way to you know light the fire under their proverbial feet. And once everybody speaks out in unison, I think we'll be able to turn the ship around. That's my feeling. Amen. I sure hope you're right. <laughs> uh, on that very positive note, let me uh, remind the folks to get out and purchase this book. Please do. Uh, John is a wealth of knowledge, spent many years in academia. It's been an incredible honor to have him on my show. Uh, great delight to meet you. Hopefully we can continue our conversation offline. Uh, anything you want to say before we wrap it up, uh, Dr. No, Stanton? No, just thank you for having me. And it's great fun talking to you because I, <laughs> I, I, I think we have similar ideas from a slightly different point of view. All good. So thank you very much. Thank you, sir. I'm, uh, take care.